Part 1. Defining Future Co. Chapter 1. Replacing one four-letter word with another. More play, less work. We think about it all the time, stress about it, are consumed by it, spend most of our waking hours at it, define ourselves by it. Sadly, though, for many of us, work is little more than a four-letter word. Ask people about work and their facial expressions speak volumes. They talk about the daily grind, corporate prison, only having to endure it for another few years. The message is clear. Work is a burden, something to be endured, something to eventually be free from. And it's not a case of where you happen to find yourself in the corporate food chain, meaning that work gets better the higher up you go. No, talk to CEOs, arguably at the top of the heap in the world of work, and one would think that life begins not when you get the job, but the day that you resign from it. Recently, I saw a just-resigned departing CEO being interviewed about what's next. His response? Now I want to go out and have some fun. So, where did this four-letter word originate? What's its provenance? Like a pair of anything but rose-tinted glasses, it shapes our world, it colours our thinking, it influences us in ways we likely aren't even aware of. Intrigued, I dug up two very different yet equally informative perspectives about work. According to the first one, the origin of the word work is closely related to torture, compulsion, torment, affliction and persecution. The French word travail and Spanish trabajo, like its English equivalent, is derived from the Latin trepaliare, which means to torture, to inflict suffering or agony. The German Arbeit suggests effort, hardship and suffering. The Latin meaning refers to anything accomplished with difficulty and struggle, closely related to the root word for persecute and the word reek, as in wreak havoc. No wonder everyone in Europe shuts down shop and siestas at every chance they get. The second perspective on the origins of work as a word and concept appears to hold more promise. In Hebrew, work and worship are derived from the same root word, meaning service. While worship is God-directed, both work and worship demand the expenditure of energy, humility, and require focus and concentration. They are a labor, yes, but born out of love rather than suffering. If we ascribe historical precedence to the Hebrew word, then it follows that somewhere along the very long line, our idea of work as a labor of love has been corrupted. How could this have played out? Clearly, the answer is complex and multifaceted, but the following research provides an interesting perspective. Researchers in the US, aiming to understand the effect of rewards, incentives on motivation, conducted the following study among preschoolers who spontaneously spent their free time drawing. They separated them into three groups. One group 
was always rewarded with a certificate for their drawing. The second group was sometimes rewarded with a certificate for their drawing. And the last group was never rewarded with a certificate for their drawing. Guess what happened? After two weeks, the first group, always rewarded, did not want to do any drawing unless they were promised a certificate. The second group, rewarded unexpectedly, still wanted to draw, although not as much as they originally had. And the last group, never rewarded with a certificate, continued to draw as much as they always had. Closer to home, a few years ago, my son Zach's well-intentioned junior school teacher implemented a reading incentive program. It worked like this. If Zach completed 10 minutes of reading a day, he could color in an apple on his reading tree. And once all the apples on the tree were colored in, Zach would get a prize. At the time, Zach loved reading and it consumed most of his free time. That is, he was reading way beyond the 10 minutes stipulated. Enter the reading incentive program. Zach faithfully did his 10 minutes a day, but no more. Proudly declaring, but mommy, why do I have to read for longer? I've done my 10 minutes. It seems clear that the quickest way to turn a labor of love into an act of drudgery, in other words, play into work, is to reward it consistently. So how does this little play-work corruption racket work? Essentially, it's about the if-then relationship, i.e. if you do this, then you will get that. This conditional relationship eliminates our autonomy. The result is that play, something we are not obliged to do and do for the sheer joy of doing it, has just magically been transformed into work, something we are obliged to do and will only do if we are well rewarded. Ironically, when leaders rely on compliance to motivate people, they end up getting less compliance because they crowd out free choice and self-management and autonomy. By messing with autonomy, that is, making the workplace an environment of control and reward, we have drained it of the very ingredient we identify as the magic one, passion, and ingenuity, creativity, imagination, drive, motivation, and innovation are hot on its heels, all effectively controlled out of the workplace by removing autonomy. Surely, as leaders, we want to create workplaces where passion, ingenuity, and imagination run riot, where engagement levels hit all-time highs. It's up to us to reframe work, not as torture, penance, punishment, but rather as an essential part of employees' humanity, an outlet for their passion, something that is a joy, a privilege, and an expression of who all of us were meant to be. Playtime. One of the techniques that we use as standard practice when we do Thinkspiration strategy workshops is to start the proceedings with what we call a positively framed question to get participants to focus on something positive. The neuroscience behind this is that when we're in a positive mood, we think better. So the positively framed question 
works like a mental palate cleanser, helping participants to leave behind the swamp of emails, irritating colleagues or stressful spreadsheets that consume them for most of their working hours. One question in particular, what was the last thing you did for the sheer joy of doing it, results in an especially bemused response. Rode my bike out on the open road or hit a really sweet golf shot. But mostly participants ask, what do you mean? Please be more specific. I've come to the conclusion that people literally don't know what I'm talking about, which is actually that other four-letter word, P-L-A-Y, also known as doing something for the sheer joy of doing it. There's a growing body of scientific research which attests to the value of play. Neuroscientists, physiologists and social scientists agree, no mean feat in itself, that play is a profound and essential biological process, is vital to the survival of our species, fosters empathy by enabling us to project ourselves into someone else's shoes. Most importantly, play allows us to create and imagine new cognitive combinations and scenarios, to see what could work, making it the core of creativity and innovation. What's more, because play gives our lives meaning and significance, we remember it. Play attracts us. Play makes us feel good. Play is how we evolve, grow and adapt to change. Most scientific discoveries come about through play because it encourages the questions, what if, isn't that funny? Shall we try? Which are far more likely to lead to breakthrough thinking than a conventional work process model. Often when we play, we lose track of time and do something so effortlessly that it feels like we're in the zone. This is a concept that Hungarian psychologist Mihaly Mihali first identified as flow. In the workplace, play is the secret ingredient of engagement. There are countless examples of people all around us playing. That is, doing things like writing software, apps, compiling encyclopedias and publishing online for no other reason than that they enjoy it. There's Firefox, a free open source web browser created by volunteers around the world. There's Wikipedia, the largest and most popular online encyclopedia in the world, created by tens of thousands of hobbyists without any special qualifications, who are not paid, let alone incentivized, and who sometimes contribute over 30 to 40 hours per week. Surely these are the kinds of workplaces we should be trying to create. Our problem is that we think of work and play as mutually exclusive, that play has no right to be mentioned in the same breath as work. I cringe when I think of the times I've chastised my son, exhorting him to stop playing around, it's time to get down to work. Imagine replacing one four-letter word, W-O-R-K, with the other, P-L-A-Y. Homework could become home play. Think of the different kinds of conversations that could ensue from where do you play as opposed to where do you work. Sports teams still have players, not workers, 
who although they may be paid professionals, do give the impression of volunteerism, passion and will. It might sound like a cute wordplay exercise, but it's interesting how renaming something can change the way we think and feel about it. However, right now, play is still an outsider, an illegal alien in many workplaces, acceptable perhaps for a specific event or workshop, but not really the way we do things around here. Perhaps leaders find it unfamiliar and don't really know what it is or how to do it. Maybe it's that leaders who have been trained to strive for control and order instinctively bulk against play, which is inherently a little anarchic. Play sweeps people up. They get carried away. They are not so easy to control. And that's different and threatening and unpredictable. As leaders, we need to acknowledge that play and passion are two sides of the same coin. If we want passion, we have to create play. This is not as hard as it looks, because as humans, we're actually wired for play. Once we start to send the message that it's okay to play, cultures and attitudes will start to shift. We're all in awe of companies like Google and Virgin's physical environments, which embody their play DNA, but it starts with a culture. Funky office decor follows. Play sounds great for Silicon Valley, IT startups, consumer brands, but what about serious industries like mining and manufacturing, which are notoriously process and efficiency driven? Fortunately, by virtue of the fact that play is about people, it's applicable to any industry. Often, those serious industries are the most play deprived and can therefore show the most significant benefits once exposed to play principles. A few months ago, we as Thinkspiration were taking a semi-parastatal industrial company through our strategy to story process. One of the outputs is a visual strategy map of their strategy, which we convert into a relevant metaphor or analogy. This map enables leaders throughout the business to facilitate conversations with their teams, even at the lowest levels, about the strategy and each employee's role in delivering it. Play, which is interwoven throughout the process, is our secret ingredient. Because the story, analogy, gives participants a license to play, they feel free to make new connections and come up with new ideas. And of course, they own the outcome. Nowhere was the value of play more apparent than when we observed the company's executive during their visual strategy map session. As opposed to the formal interactions we'd previously been privy to, this time we saw the same team transformed. Fully engaged, listening, laughing, brainstorming, having fun. A few of the most senior executives remarked, for the first time, I actually really get our strategy. There's no doubt that this session was one that would be remembered, internalized and acted upon. The Junior and Joburg and Darba Mining Industry Conferences, which focus on the South African mining industry, are other examples of play at work. These have been hailed as fresh, invigorating forums for honest, constructive conversations about the mining industry. People continuously ask, how do you do it? 
How do you create an environment where people say stuff that they really feel, but would never say on record? The secret ingredients, again, play and irreverence. The chairman gives full license to his wisecracking, irreverent and sarcastic bent, and we structure and design sessions which invite play. One of the most popular is Mythbusters, borrowed from the successful TV show, where rather than having presenters drone on unintelligibly, risking death by PowerPoint, we give them three minutes to prove or disprove prevailing industry myths. The result? People remember the forthrightness, the passion, the no-holds-barred discussions, and the presenters. Presenters who have been known to land up in hot water when they return to their grey, dreary, no-play zones.